0: We know from the research that in order for humans to really flourish, we need to feel like we are, we have some decisions making power over our own lives, that we are in control of some of the factors of our own lives. And that's why I think these high control environments are so destructive for young
1: people. Where we're talking about an attendance crisis, I, I, I think it's, it's a slight misnomer. And maybe that's an understatement. It isn't really a crisis of attendance. It's a crisis of the education system as a whole. And it is a crisis that is related to the way in which our country, our society, has developed over the last few years, and, and specifically, in some respects, has responded to the COVID pandemic, the cost of living crisis, austerity, a whole range of things.
2: I think we need to be careful about um, uh, the COVID effect because it, it created and 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 uh, created new cohorts and added fuel to a fire that was already burning, and that parents were already frustrated with how they were seen and responded to by services and systems, the biggest one, their lives being education.
3: education.
4: Hello once again, fellow passengers of Planet World. Welcome to a special episode of the Rethinking Education podcast. This week, there has been lots of talk about the attendance crisis, and with good reason. Since the COVID pandemic, persistent absenteeism in England has more than doubled from 10% to 22%. According to recent research by the Centre for Social Justice, more than one in four parents now agrees that it is not essential for children to be in school every day. Both of the major political parties have announced plans this week to tackle the attendance crisis often there's an assumption that school is the best place for children to be that 100 percent attendance is the optimal thing to aim for and blame is often laid at the feet of the parents of children who are struggling to attend so what's going on why are so many young people voting with their feet how do we think about attendance currently and how else could or should we think about it in this live episode of the podcast which we put together at very short notice this week in less than 2 days advance notice we had over 250 people attend an interesting format which we may have to use again in the future. I was joined by three fascinating and very knowledgeable guests on this topic. First of all Ben Davis who is the head teacher of St Ambrose Barlow RC High School in Salford. Ellie Costello, the director of an organization called Square Peg, which advocates for young people with barriers to attendance. And also the co-author of the book, brilliant book, Square Pegs, Inclusivity, Compassion, and Fitting In, A Guide for Schools. And Dr. Naomi Fisher, a clinical psychologist, a homeschooling parent, and also the author of two fantastic books, Changing Our Minds and A Different Way to Learn. This is a very important, very interesting conversation, which I'm looking forward to sharing with you. And so without further ado, I will hand over to yesterday's fascinating conversation with Naomi, Ellie and Ben. Hope you enjoy the show.
3: Let's education.
4: The room is filling rapidly. Wow. Look at that. Very well attended. Hello everybody, please feel free to turn your camera on briefly and give us a wave if you wish. Welcome to this session on the attendance crisis, why is it happening and how might we fix it? This is a hot issue, as you may have noticed, (laughs) partly just simply because of just how many people have come to this session on very short notice. Um, But it's something that obviously everybody's talking a lot about at the moment, so let's get into it. The attendance crisis is an interesting phenomenon. The, the two stats that people have been using a lot this week is um, is that over, over one in four parents, uh, there was some recent research, I think it was a, a YouGov poll commissioned by the Centre for Social Justice, uh, one in four parents thinks that it's not essential for their child to attend school every day. Which has got lots of people very um, alarmed, and we're now at a point where over one in five children in the UK are persistent absentees, which means that they're missing more than ten percent of time. And the, the, I often think it doesn't sound like that much—ten percent, does it? Ninety percent—they're they're in for ninety percent of the time, but that equates to about four weeks across the school year, which is you know twenty days, um, which is a lot, isn't it? And there's a similar pattern happening all across the world this is not just the uk's problem and we'll maybe get into that shortly so we're joined today by three amazing guests we have we have dr naomi fisher ben davis and ellie costello and so i'm going to ask each of them to just very briefly introduce themselves and then we'll get into this so naomi would you like to go first
0: Yes. Hi, I'm Naomi Fisher. So I'm a clinical psychologist and I work with young people who are not happy at school and their parents. Um, and I I have I specialise in trauma, autism and alternatives to school. And I've written two books also about that.
4: Which are very
1: fascinating and highly recommended if anyone hasn't read them yet. Uh, ben? Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Davis. I'm head teacher of St. Ambrose Barlow Roman Catholic High School, which is a, a slightly larger than average secondary school in Salford in the northwest of England.
4: Great stuff. Thank you very much. And Ellie.
2: Hello, I am Ellie. I am executive director at a small but mighty community interest company, uh, change maker. We like to think, um, and we work in the area of representing and um, change making on behalf of children and families who struggle to attend, access, or remain in education for whatever reason. We've also written a book. Please go out and get it. Square Pegs which uh, launched last year and has been very well received and indeed recommended to the Department for Education as core reading
4: as indeed it should be and it was in the it was in the top hundred books for a while wasn't it not just education books but literally the top 100 books on the planet it was it was um yeah. incredibly well received and and that seems to be there's something happening here isn't there there's a, there seems to be an awakening happening that's not the only book there's can't not not there's Heidi Steele's book there's loads of books that are, that are on a similar theme about parents who are really struggling with their kids and non-attendance of, of of school and there's just this this you know there's absolutely massive facebook groups with lots of people who are concerned about this so it feels like something is happening here, and uh, and we need to understand it. And so let's let's do that. Let's solve this crisis in the next hour. So so um so Ellie, we're going to start with you because you are across the date the data like nobody else that I know. So could you please just sort of give us a broad overview? What's happening? What are the statistics? The trends? What are the sort of key developments that have happened in recent years?
2: So I think it's important to start with pre-pandemic landscape, number one, because um, whilst Covid definitely has had an adverse impact and an increased impact, um, this was a problem that was ticking along long before everyone had ever thought of Covid. And in fact, under the last Labour government, um, there was a big push around behaviour and truancy. Um, And that led to um, a a lot of focus on children who are excluded um, and a lot of funding going into children at risk of exclusion. But of course, the exclusions data is dwarfed by absence data. It always was. Back in um, uh, 2018, the autumn of 2018, um, we had persistent absence running at three quarters of a million um, and um, uh, exclusions data was running at 8000. Um, Now, don't get me wrong, any excluded child is, you know, that's 8,000 too many, but let's just sit with that. Um, The following autumn in 2019, it rose to nearly a million children as persistent absentees, so it had a big leap of 20%. Now, it's fair to say that under Labour, the last Labour government, and under the efforts uh, and and sort of the the continuing um, benefits, if you like, when the coalition came in, attendance data was falling. We had the introduction of um, parental accountability measures and all sorts, and a sort of a, a renewed effort so, to, to make sure that parents didn't um, take their children out on term time holidays and that sort of thing. But again, term time holiday absences are a tiny fraction of persistent absence. And actually, um, John Pratt's case really did argue the point that actually um, a five-day holiday during term time didn't actually impact attainment um, for those children that went on those holidays. Um, but of course, we, we we had a narrative that every day matters and the government have announced their Moments Matter campaign this year, uh, sorry, this week, which I can talk about. We then have COVID. We have a gap in reporting because everything was put on hold and we come back from COVID. And obviously, we had um, Gavin Williamson in the DFE and we had a massive, hard sort of Um, response to you know um, uh, parents just have to tell their kids to get on with it we all need to reset and and you know and 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 get back to our learning in person Um, no work will be sent home if you're out of school Um, and um, but actually for families like me um, medical needs tuition um, and um, having work home was always a problem so um, nothing actually changed (laughs) It's just that my um, ch- child, Alda's child, was suddenly able to access learning online and that led to a re-engagement for him. So there were different, tu- you know, we started seeing gains for some children during COVID um, because they were actually able to return to education for the first time. Um, and that's important because it it, it touches on the uh, variability that should be there Um, and the variety for children to access education. Um, In the last three years, um, in terms of attendance data, we've obviously, we were, campaigning and lobbying the Centre for Social Justice, we met with them in 2019, and the Children's Commissioner's Office, which led to data uh, and uh, being more visible at that level, and it, um, attendance became a Cabinet priority in 2021, that's really key because what it means is if it's a Cabinet priority, a government priority, the next incoming government um, it needs to become their priority, and if they're not going to make the list of cabinet priorities um, remain on their um, on their docket, they have to answer in parliament why that is. So, a cabinet priority is really important in terms of focus, which is why Bridget Phillipson this week has agreed that attendance is her top priority, as it is for Gillian Keegan. So, politically, there's been some really big levers that have been pulled, um, and just in terms of data broadly, the sensitivity around why and how children are captured as persistent absentees has become less tolerant and so you're more likely to be captured as a persistent absentee um, now than you were um, previously but also because of the focus on attendance more children are being marked as unauthorized because schools either feel that they can't or won't or 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 what have you or they don't have the um, information in which to authorize it. Um, and so, and so we've got a sort of heightened capture, if you like. So we've got increased sensitivity because the percentages for what, considering persistent absence have become more have become um, lower. Um, but also, um, uh, we've got a focus, which I think is also creating a bulge, and we have COVID, an illness.
4: Can I just ask, can you can you explain how what is it that schools are doing more of that, that's that's making them more sensitive? What are they capturing now and counting as absence that it wasn't happening before?
2: So Ofsted are now asking about attendances as much more as part of the inspection framework. Number one, we had Amanda Spielman was the first to sort of talk about the parent contract being broken. That's really important. Um, and that leaders are having to were having to report. So in April 2020, Ofsted um at, at the point that inspections were frozen, Ofsted became the holder of attendance meetings nationally and local authorities and schools were expected to report on attendance weekly for the very first time. So that became Ofsted's sort of remit because they weren't inspecting. So they used that workforce in order to focus on attendance for the first time. That's that was new. And that legacy, if you like, of focus was then translated and continued under Nadim Zahawi when he was um, Children's Education Minister. Um, uh, and, um, and, And that sort of reset that we saw. So we had a massive focus with local authorities and schools actually having to do live reporting for the very first time with the DfE and via Ofsted. And that, that was a really key shift in terms of that sort of focus. So that duty, attendance is everyone's business, became a massive focus. And where are all your children? Now they're out of school, do you know where they are?
4: I see. Okay, thank you. And I've got one more question on this before we go to the others, which is, to what extent is crisis the right word for this, is this a crisis? When I was looking around at some international comparisons this morning, I saw an article in, from Denmark. which People often think that to as like a really progressive model of how you know what what a country should, groovy country should look like, and they have very similar data. They've got one in five kids missing ten percent or more of days in school, and that article just said, "But this, that's like slightly better than it was last year." And so you know it's moving in the right direction. And so the exact same data is being interpreted in a completely different way in in, in a different country. So I was wondering, like, to what? That like, you know, if twenty percent of kids are missing, are missing ten percent or more of lessons, that still means that eighty percent of kids, on average, are in ninety percent or more of lessons. So you know, most kids are still going to, to school for most of the time still. So, what to what extent do you think this is a crisis?
2: I I think it's really important that we shouldn't be complacent that a quarter of all school children are struggling to remain and access or attend schools. I think, I think that is a massive problem that we should be concerned about. Where it gets whipped up is sort of within the child protection and safeguarding lens that, oh my gosh, these children are at home and they're at risk of harm. And actually, we know when we speak to academics who research and who lecture on, on, on social work and social care and children with disabilities, Luke Clement's work um, out of Leeds and Professor Andy Bilson's work as well. We know that schools are feeling obliged to refer a lot of non-attendant families and they are being placed under a child protection lens unnecessarily, but also MASH is swamped, multi-agency service hubs are swamped and are just pinging referrals back. So they're just like, this is an attendance problem. This child isn't meeting the test for at risk of harm. And or children who should be under MASH because they their child in need, children with disabilities, they're not able to be supported because we know we've got underfunding and send um, anyway. And so those me- mechanisms are crumbling as well. So I think it's really important to... We should, be, we should be thinking about why children are not enjoying attending or remaining or feeling included at school. But also I think our children are holding up a mirror to us um, and are showing us that actually school isn't fit for purpose and rethinking education is about that. But also I saw one of the questions very briefly about does captured children means counted children? It's a really important point because within um uh, the last um, uh, couple of years, we've seen live attendance reporting via SIMS, which is the school's um, uh, registrations and um, aggregated computerised system for schools. Um, and under the schools bill, of course, um, James, the last time we talked with Naomi, it was it was about that increase in surveillance and um, reporting around attendance. Um, because how do we feel about the, the state knowing that every where every single school-aged child is live in real time. How do we feel about that? It's important that we know where they are. Well, how is that data being used? So I think there is now, I think up to about uh, 75% of schools are actually have just voluntarily decided to report their data. But again, there is a, a, a question there about how our children's data is being used and how long it's being held for. And one of the things that came out was that any school-age child at the age that they left school full-time education, their attendance data would be retained and held by the state for sixty years? Why? Um, and that's about trying to look at um, reducing crime and also um, um, finding out where how um, how how children end up, how how attendance does impact. So I think I think there's a lot of good focus, but I think we need to be alert to intended and unintended consequences
4: that are at play sure okay thank you for that okay so Ben um as a secondary head teacher in a state school, what's your take on this how does this how does this problem how, how does this issue show up in your in the day to day running of your school
1: well there's a great deal that Ellie has just said in her very detailed and thoughtful analysis that resonates very strongly with me and with the staff at, at our school. In terms of how this shows up day to day, like a lot of schools, our focus more than ever than it was in, say, 2019 or 2018, is on young people who find school a difficult place to attend. And I think it is, it's very tempting to talk about cohorts of children as persistent absentees in the same way that we often use cohort-based language to describe young people who come from disadvantaged backgrounds. But as soon as you do that, you you lose sight of the individual human stories. In a school our size, 1,100 children, there are going to be lots and lots of stories and each need is very different to the other. So we spend a lot of our time, and there's quite a large team of staff who work on this, trying to understand what the barriers to attendance are and attempting to remove them. And what we, I suppose if I was to categorize, what we then experience, you find a range of barriers from those that are relatively easy to address to those that are extremely problematic because that young person's life has become so difficult for a range of factors that usually extend well beyond school. And I think at this point I would say, and I know that this will be picked up elsewhere in our discussion, that where we're talking about an attendance crisis, I I, I think it's, it's a slight misnomer. maybe that's an understatement it isn't really a crisis of attendance it's a crisis of the education system as a whole and it is a crisis that is related to the way in which our country our society has developed over the last few years and and specifically in some respects has responded to the covid pandemic the cost of living crisis austerity a whole range of things and some of these things are you, you could argue are specific to p- particular political ideologies. Some are even more deep rooted than that. And we probably haven't got time to go into them all here. But what that then leaves schools having to do is, and I would say that we are having to do this with far greater accountability pressures on us than ever before. Fewer resources, much, much, much higher expectations from politicians, from external agencies, from Ofsted and from families, and in some respects, those expectations are higher because of what schools did during COVID, or they are higher because um, parents, families, carers are responding to the higher expectations of other agencies. And we're, we're having to do all of those things because if we don't do them, the impact on the school in terms of an austere judgment, in terms of the way it is perceived, it c- can be extremely damaging. So. What you end up with, I think, is a system where there is a a very high level of stress running right through it from the adults to the young people, to families and back again. You end up with, um, therefore, accountability measures that distort, that can distort, they don't have to distort, but they can easily distort the actions that schools take. And it is very difficult for schools to stay focused on the individual stories of families and young people. And you also end up with a very interesting situation, particularly for school leaders, I think, where they feel that their personal values and principles are difficult to align with those of the system. But in the end, they are people who have families and mortgages and have to hold down a job and have a deep sense of service to to the families they serve and to the schools that they work with. And they have to keep going. So I suppose I'm saying all that, not because I'm calling for sympathy. I I suppose I'm calling for empathy. But I'm suggesting that there is a highly complex situation happening in what was already complex anyway. Schools are fantastically complex organisations. That then Schools are not businesses. If, if you think about the fact that every day in our school there are 1,100 children, 120 adults, think about the infinitesimal number of interactions that will take place, the way in which any one of those can be misinterpreted, um, spun, misunderstood... Or can go and can go very, very well, and lots of them do, then you have some understanding of why this is very, very complex. Because when you sit down with a young person, as we do every day, and we've got a team of people who work with young people who find school attendance difficult, just asking the question, why is school hard for you to come to, can do one of two things. First of all, it, it can be a deeply inadequate question because it can be very hard to understand the question in the first place. Or secondly, it can set in train a conversation that opens up a huge range of factors that the member of staff or the team of staff will then say, right, they will then feel committed to how do I address each one of those things? Because we we as members of staff who work in school, we want to think that our school is, is a place that matters, is a place that young people want to come to. But I know as a head... That there are children who manifestly do not want to come into school and that's the same in every secondary school and I would suggest that this goes beyond the state system this will exist this situation will exist in private and independent schools as well but then there's also a layer of young people who come into school every day and mask the fact that school is a very very difficult place to be and in what has become a very adversarial system for all sorts of reasons that are not the fault of schools necessarily, are not the fault of parents, but are often to do with external pressures. Because people feel the pressure of addressing attendance, sometimes they take actions which put them in further conflict conflict with families. And I also think that then we end up with now narratives around young people lacking resilience we end up with really unhelpful narratives about well parents are all working from home so it's easier to let their kids stay off I just don't think that's true I mean right okay it may be true for a handful but I I I don't think it's a it's a general malaise at all I think when it comes to childhood resilience don't uh, I'm sure everyone on this call knows this but I am stunned every day by the resilience that it takes a child to get through school when school is a hard place to be. That, that That's a level of resilience that I, I as an adult, find hard to relate to. And for I can think of a young person, for example, who, who comes into our school, she's got an attendance of about 40%. Last year, her attendance was close to zero. And we have her in school every day. Oh, sorry, we don't have her in school every day. We have her in school two days out of five. But on those days, her going to class is really, really difficult. So great that she comes in, but she can't access classes. And that's not because adults are throwing barriers up. It's because there's a lot to get through before she can help herself, find the resources within herself, appreciate what she is capable of, and th- then access classes to, to go to school. And then on top of that, there's the fact that. There is there is I think insufficient diversity within the system, so we we do talk often, don't we, about a, a one size fits all system. And obviously Ellie talks about this a great deal. It's it's a driving force in what in what you and your organisation does. And so as, as staff, we often find ourselves sitting around saying, "Well, we have this young person who's got an attendance of fifty percent. It's fantastic that they're attending fifty percent, but it feels quite cruel." to make them attend school because we can see they need something else. They know they need something else. Their parents know that they need something else, but there isn't something else. And I would love to have a budget that I could reach into and say, here is £20,000 for that child to have the thing they need, but I don't have it. So you then end up with a a situation where you, you are accused of tolerating low attendance by someone from outside the school or, you end up potentially in conflict with the child and the parents, which is a situation we really seek to avoid, or we end up doing something else. Now, we talk in our school a lot about a very simple three word phrase that we've tried to use to define what we do this year. And that is school that matters. We we repeat this phrase every Monday and every Friday to staff. We must have a school that matters where every child can access excellence, whatever that means, because that's shorthand for doing something good that means something, and where every child can feel a sense of belonging. Now, we have an attendance at the moment of 93.5%. Our attendance for uh, young people who are from disadvantaged backgrounds is 7% above the national average. Our attendance for children who have a special educational need is about 6% above the national average, which sounds on the surface like a good thing. But Bear in mind what I said earlier, that includes young people who are struggling every single day because whatever we want to do, we can't quite give them the thing that they need. But what I would, what I see in schools that I go into and in my own school every day is staff who care so deeply about young people and their families. And st- staff will use phrase, phrases unabashedly like, I love what I do. I want to show love to that child and their family. And we talk about that in assemblies, for example, but we can't necessarily deliver it in the way that we want to because the resources are not there and because we're still getting to grips with understanding a situation and and, our, and its impact on our school, which is, I think, a relatively young one. As Ellie said, we only started reporting attendance in the way that we do now to the government in, in the autumn of 2020. And you don't have to report your attendance to the DFE. Most schools are voluntarily uh, signed up to it or you use the, the, the FFT uh, data. So I, that, I hope, is some kind of sense of, of how it feels on the ground.
4: Mm. Thank you for that. It's really interesting to hear that perspective. And there's a, there's a lot that you said there. But one that, one thing that segues nicely into Naomi is where you were talking about the wider system. And Naomi did a really good Twitter thread recently where she was talking about how politicians often are are treating the attendance problem like it's it is the problem like it's a hammer that we need to hit sorry a nail that we need to hit with the hammer of fines and we need to just get kids in school and then we'll fix the attendance problem and naomi made the very astute point that it's a symptom (laughs) of a a different problem that lies elsewhere and just like fixing the symptom is not going to make the underlying problems go away So um, we're going to get into that. We're going to open up these two questions shortly. Why is this happening and what can we do about it? But first, I'd like to ask you, Naomi, about your your work as a clinical psychologist and the young people that you work with and how this this plays up for you in your practice.
0: Yeah, so um, I sometimes think I hear the kind of unguarded voice. I hear what people feel and I I hear a lot of distress in my work. And I think I really feel, I feel passionately about this idea that what we see on the surface, attendance and behaviour is a sign of what's going on underneath for young for our young people. And those are the stories that I hear in my work. So young people come and they tell me their stories and they tell me how awful they feel at school a lot of the time, unfortunately. And so when I hear politicians say, you know, just get them into school, it's like we've got this, they've got this idea that school is essentially a good and benign place for everybody. And if only we could make parents and children see that, then it all would be fine and everybody would be happy. And the problem with that, and one of the problems with the data is that, in that from that mindset, a desperately unhappy child at school not learning is a success, whereas a happy thriving child learning at home, or maybe managing to make it into school, even nine days out of 10, which is 90%, right, that's failing. And I think we've got the whole thing upside down. And we need to be thinking about how do we help our children thrive and learn, rather than how do we force them into this one specific place. Because I hear lots of children, and I was one myself, which is why I'm passionate about this area. I was labeled a school refuser at 13, because I found the comprehensive school, I went to a deeply aversive environment. And I know that the problem wasn't I was anxious about school the problem was that there was a real misfit between me and that school and I wasn't learning anything and it would not have helped me learn more if I had been forced to go there and I think I think that Covid the pandemic has had a big impact and what I hear about from parents and I I know that they're using the language they're saying the contract between parents and school has been broken and what they mean is parents aren't forcing their children into school, maybe quite as much as they were before the pandemic. But I think the contract between parents and school has been broken in a different way, because I think parents got a window into what was happening in school when their children were were at home, they were sent the work, they could see the lessons. And so many parents have said to me, it was a real shock to me to find out, just what they were being made to do, how mundane, how boring a lot of the work was that they were being made to do. And now suddenly I, as the parent, was expected to make them do it. And I was like, Well, why? The parents say, Oh, well, why? I was thinking, why? Why am I making them do this? You know, we're in the middle of this global pandemic, there's very high anxiety around everywhere. And my child is meant to be completing worksheets about fronted adverbials. And I talked to a a publisher, a dad, who was a publisher, and he was like, I'm I'm a publisher. I've been an editor. I've never had to know about fronted adverbials. I've got a PhD, you know, people. (laughs) So people were coming at education and they were seeing it in a different way. And I think that maybe some parents lost this belief that school was necessarily a good and benign place for their children. And I think parents are expected to believe that. And in fact, schools often get very angry if if parents in any way challenge that. And they some schools will tell parents that they must support the school. And under all circumstances, they must always take the school's side. But I think there's another aspect with COVID, which was that I think that during COVID, there was a very strong message that other people are scary. The world outside is scary. You need to keep yourself away. You need to be two metres away from other people at all times. And I think for children who were at a very formative stage in their development, that though that two years was far more significant for them than it is for adults. I think as adults, we could remember always a time when it wasn't like that. Whereas I talked to many young people very quickly, they couldn't really remember a time when it wasn't like that. You know, I talked to parents who say, um, you know, I was a bit lax about wearing masks. My children were absolutely on it. Always a mask in their pocket. Still now they don't feel safe wearing a mask. So I think we we spent these two, those two years with a very strong message to young people that there are things you should be scared of, things you should keep away from. And then it was kind of like, right, all over now, back to work, everyone back to school. You should all be over that. And the focus very much was on being behind academically behind and there wasn't much focus on the things that children missed out on in those years, which I think was play and social emotional things. And I wish that we had been able to say after the pandemic, we've got a whole generation of kids here who haven't had the opportunities to play and be with other people in those last couple of years. I have children myself who were, you know, eight and 11, I think when the pandemic started, playgrounds were locked. You weren't allowed to meet other children, their world shut down. And I feel like that is what I wish we'd really focused on and help and said, so, you know, let's just shut, let's just put the academics to aside for a moment because, you know, they're not behind because it's a whole cohort. The whole lot of them have gone through this. They are a cohort with a different experience. How can we respond to that rather than how can we say to them, you know, you're behind where you should have been and we've got to get you through and you've got to keep going? I feel that was really short-sighted. And then I feel that a lot of what is done because of this focus on attendance, a lot of what is done to children in the name of attendance has the impact of making things worse. So I talk to a lot of parents who are told if their children are unhappy at school that they should make home less fun. They should make home less pleasant. And that has the impact for children of really having a seriously detrimental effect on their, their mental health. I've got one book written for professionals which says, recommends that parents should create an atmosphere of solitary confinement around their young people if they don't attend school on a particular day. It's very hard to imagine any other mental health book that would suggest that kind of intervention, but it's there right here. <laughs> And the other thing that schools, parents are encouraged to do is to force their children in no matter what the level of distress. Both of those things have the potential to really damage a child's relationship with their parents, damage their relationship with school and to have long term mental health consequences. So I think I think we've got a really destructive situation where this focus on attendance is leading to people doing things which actually make things worse for young people.
4: Yeah, thank you. And just a follow-up question. There was another thing that you wrote recently, Naomi, which mm-hmm. you were talking about. Like Another trend that we've seen in this country recently is that the, the schools have started to have much more strict approaches to, yeah. to, to managing behaviour, very sort of um, like micromanaged stuff about like you get a detention... Yeah slightest thing for not having a spare pen in your bag, no mind not having a pen, having the wrong coloured socks on and so on. Could you talk yeah. a little bit about that? And if that's probably a little bit more of a controversial area where I don't know if there's strong data there, but yeah. what's your sense from the young people that you're working with that those kinds of things are a factor here?
0: Absolutely. I hear about right from the beginning, I hear about five-year-olds who are worried about behavior charts on the walls, you know, where we have the rain and the sun and you're on the rain cloud if you've been naughty and you're on the sun if you've been good. I hear about children who Go into reception or year one, and who start to worry about that all the time. And I mean, they, all of those public systems, they effectively use shame in order to control children's behavior. And when you're you, and they, and they use shame and anxiety. And when you use shame and anxiety to control behavior, it's hard to titrate that you know, you might be thinking we're getting just the level right to try and control their behavior. But actually, for lots of kids, that shame and anxiety becomes overwhelming. And we've got particularly in secondary schools. So I talk to young people who tell me about their very punitive systems where, you know, one girl told me, you get a C point if you forget your if your clip on tie falls off, because she said, you know, your clothing has to be exactly right. And none of us have on ties we all have clip on they fall off sometimes that's a c point get a c point because your pencil's broken and you haven't got a spare one or maybe you've lent your spare one to your friend you get two c points detention automatically you get three c points in a day isolation i'm like that's an extraordinarily punitive level of control that we're putting on children under. And of course, there's going to be psychological distress as a result of that. I just don't see how anybody can imagine being in that system and not think it would cause psychological distress. And from the outside, it may look lovely and calm and everybody's doing what they're looking, what they're meant to be doing. But on the inside, I know there's high levels of distress because I hear about it all the time. And I hear lots of parents saying, you know, the child holds it together in school. They appear to be okay in school. They come out and it's like all hell breaks loose, desperately worried, not able to sleep, waking up in the middle of the night, worried that they haven't got enough pencils. And there's nothing I can do to reduce that. And I'm told it's my parenting. There's a lot of parent blame. I'm told it's my parenting that is why they're not behaving like this. I've even had parents tell me that they have been told they should bring in the same systems that they have in school at home because they're clearly working at school because the child appears to be well behaved. So if maybe if we had you know the same thing, C points, <laughs> isolation at home, then the child would never be able to show us how they feel. Um, yes. So mm. I, I do hear a lot about that.
4: Yes, there's lots of like locating the problem in the child or in the parents right that's that seems to be yeah. like lots of the narrative around this and very so- very
0: rare to look at the system. It's always yes, push the children more, blame the parents more, get them in, and then the problem will be over
4: yeah and so let's let's move into this sort of open discussion part where there's these two questions: why is this happening and and what can what can what what's the best way to to think about fixing it? And so, to to summarize your sort of overarching theme, you were talking about the breaking or the the, the flexing of this contract, and it, essentially, are you suggesting that that parents feel like they're more sympathetic towards their children if their children say that they don't want to go in? That parents are a bit more sympathetic to them now because they've because, like you say, COVID gave them an up close and personal view of what school is like, and they went, actually, do you know what? Fine, if you're gonna do that, and if you if you're reading a book and if you're doing other things at home. Then I'm okay with you. Then that hence that one in four stat that one in four parents are okay with their kids not being in every day. Is that essential? I think it's I yeah. think
0: it's more intense than that. I think it's kind of often portrayed like that, like parents oh, you know, fair enough. But actually, I think it's that when children express real distress about what's going on at school, I think previously their parents might be more likely to just say, just going to go in anyway. But now that they've seen the difference, I think it's often the difference. Parents will actually say to me, I saw during COVID that actually they were more relaxed. Their spark came back. They were, you know, we didn't have such these terrible mornings anymore. And I realised that maybe it doesn't have to be like that. And I did also, I have also met several parents who said that the flexibility of COVID meant my child was able to engage with learning in a way that they weren't before. So I worked with a parent whose child had brain injury and who absolutely couldn't attend school. And during COVID, the online lessons meant that he could start doing it. And then afterwards, the end of COVID, the school was told they were no longer allowed to continue with doing online provision in the way they've been doing yeah can Go i on, just Ellie? add
2: something because i think i think i became a parent in 2005 and i think that we have seen a massive improvement and change in how our expectant parents are supported throughout pregnancy and antenatally and perinatally to get to know their children So in in terms of health visiting, the focus was all about, you know, getting to know your baby, knowing your bum preparing your baby, being attuned and reciprocal to your baby's cues. you know there's a huge amount compared to when I was raised in the 70s, you know where a baby was put out in the pram in the garden for four hours in the afternoon and that was that or on the street. Um, you know it's it's really different. So actually we've had we've got sort of 30 years worth of attachment focused early years and perinatal antenatal focus on on, on, on how parents should be, responding to and getting to know their children and I I think that that education didn't get that memo education did not focus or even approve of and sanction the research of child development and so we see this actually playing out with early years providers who are really frustrated they're trying to deliver a nurturing child-centered play-based nurture-based approach and then suddenly literally from reception, pretty much, because we have the gove effect, the gib effect, everything else, we have um upstreamed formal education earlier into schooling. And that is a really sharp cliff edge. So whereas most parents experience that most acutely at secondary, where it's drop your drop your child at the school gates, thanks, we'll take it from here that has been creeping into primary education and indeed is a sort of real tension point in early years as well. And so I think that what we are seeing is a real conflict between parents who actually have bought into the importance of getting to know their child and responding to their cues and the responsibility of, my child's unhappy and I need to do something about it. This isn't actually unhappiness, this is deep distress. And I think also, i was a, a parent who experienced um uh school refusal and could talk about why that name isn't appropriate um from 2010 so i'm a decade in advance covid actually didn't look any different for us we'd already lost the ability to to access education leave the house and no service around us knew what the hell was going on so including healthcare so so for us covid was just more of the same it, we'd had we'd done it for eight years and it was uh six years and it was just another two years so i think don't forget that actually what naomi is seeing is a sudden increase of what was already happening and there were pe- and in fact the founder of square peg fran she was eight years before me so so i think i think we need to be careful about um uh, the COVID effect, because it, it created and 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 uh, created new cohorts and added fuel to a fire that was already burning, and that parents were already frustrated with how they were seen and responded to by services and systems. The biggest one, their lives being education.
4: Mm. Shall we move to the second of these these questions? I feel like we've talked a bit about why this is happening, and you've given very rich and and you know i think accurate descriptions as to why this is happening and how a tendency the symptom of, of a wider malaise kids are not enjoying school they're voting with their feet <laughs> um and so then the question of how do we fix it um arises let's go to you ben what what, what are your thoughts on this but if if you had the ear of bridget phillipson who let's face it is probably going to be the next, who knows, we might have six more, six more Tory education secretaries before she gets in, but she's probably going to be being there by the end of the year. Um, if you had her ear, what would you be suggesting?
1: Well, the first thing is that there is a general point I would make that I think is the starting point for a response to almost any of the educational issues, the big educational issues we're facing in this country. And that is that there is, a, and has been for a long time, an absence of an inclusive Consensus around a compelling vision for education and childhood in this country. So, part of that goes back uh, to the emblematic move that Michael Gove made to downgrade the Department for Education, Children and Families to the Department for Education. And what has then resulted from that is a much more narrow focus that supporters of that approach would say has had a measurable impact. And certainly, If you use certain metrics, you could make quite a strong case to say, if you believe those things, that that has had quite a strong impact. So that would be the first thing, the the vision. The second thing would be that we need to look at the curriculum as a whole. And I don't just mean the secondary school curriculum, the integrated universal curriculum from three to 18 and the qualifications that go with it. You can't separate the two things. And I don't think we should underestimate the effect that qualifications at 16 in particular have on how curricula are developed much, much, much lower down. Ellie's just given an example of the way in which formalised schooling has become much more prevalent for much, much younger children. I think we would also need to look at things like the school starting age and some of the habits of mind and thought that people, including parents and families, have about these sorts of things. Because uh, one of the points that occurred to me when Naomi was talking about behaviour systems is that we seem to find it very, very difficult in this country to think beyond our collective bias towards quite an outdated but very familiar model of education. And I don't want to get into metaphors about factory schooling and all that kind of thing, but there are lots of different ways of providing education to young people and of young people accessing education from a much younger age than 16 or 18. But we seem to throw barriers up all the time when those things are discussed because we find it threatening because it feels like it's handing over too much control to young people and removing control from adults. Uh, and we we seem very wedded to quite strongly authoritarian hierarchical models which people buy into quite readily because that's what they experience. So that that feels familiar to them. I think we need to consider those very strongly. And I also think we need to consider the place, quite simply, of well-being in its broadest sense in schools. We talk all the time about safeguarding. What I noticed in our school that we've done in the last year is that where everyone has always talked about safeguarding being everyone's responsibility, we've shifted to talking about safeguarding Attendance and well being as one thing being everyone's responsibility. Because if you try to separate those three things out, you take a silo based approach to thinking that is quite unhelpful. So, every week, for example, it's quite a simple thing. Every week, for example, the people who lead on relationships, behavior, attendance, safeguarding, and special educational needs in our school meet with me for a, an hour and a half, two hours, an hour every Tuesday afternoon, where we look at lots and lots of individual children and ask quite difficult questions about that and try to decide what we can do better for those young people. I think lots of schools do very similar things. And I think that uh, another thing we need to consider is in this country in general within the education system is how we celebrate young people and how we build young people's rights into the system far more those have been forgotten about. There was a consultation out at the moment, for example, and this is, we absolutely haven't got time to discuss this, on um, issues of transgender, which fails to mention children's rights at all within it. And children's rights really need to be a starting point for how we uh, improve our education system. So I think there is some very big thinking that needs to be done around several of those things. If you're asking me at school level, then it's it's difficult for me to talk about anything other than the school that I work in, because I, I don't think it's my place to speak for other schools. Um, but in the school that I work in, I think the you have to adopt an attitude of, solu- of a, a solution focused approach to how you work with young people and families as far as it is possible to do that within the confines and the parameters that you're working in. And you have to be realistic about what you can do and what you can't do, because if you aren't, then you aren't able to allocate resources to the right place. But our starting point is always, is everybody safe? Is everybody healthy? Is everybody included? And where where that isn't the case, then we're going right back. And if I can just have a moment to just give an example of that, like every school where we have rules, I think if I shared them with you, we would have quite a long debate and some of you would agree with me, some of you wouldn't. We, we do use suspensions. We have done permanent exclusions. We do use detentions. But we also use a lot of flexibility in school. On Friday, the deputy head and myself dealt with a, dealt with a young person who was on the phone in the corridor at lunchtime. We don't allow mobile phones to be out in school. We could have a debate about that, I know. Um, but my point is that very quickly when someone stepped in, we realised that, she was on the phone to a relative to say, I've had a really good day in school. And this is a child who finds school very, very, very difficult. And that straightaway turned the conversation round to, well, that's fantastic, isn't it? And so what could have been, if you like, a disciplinary issue, because it was dealt with in a flexible way, didn't become that. And that's what I see a lot, an awful lot of staff in a lot of schools doing. I wouldn't underestimate that, actually.
4: OK, yeah. Thank you, thank you. Um, In a moment, I'm going to go to Ellie because I know that you have a plan that you've written and you're about to publish and you've done lots of thinking around this. But first, there's a question I'd like to put to Naomi, which is, um, so Derry just commented in the chat saying there are over 500 democratic schools worldwide. Children and young people want to go to these non-coercive places. And Sophie Smith-Tong, hello, Sophie, uh, mentioned earlier, just a simple comment, autonomy is the answer. I know that Mm -hmm. you... Agree with that, but could you? Hopefully. because you, You've voted with your feet, and your kids have never been to school, and they go to these to, to, to currently to a democratic school. What yeah. is the role of autonomy here? Why do you think that this is such a crucial part of the puzzle?
0: Well, we know. Well, we know from research that in order for humans to really flourish, we need to feel like we are we have some decisions making power over our own lives, that we are in control of some of the factors of our own lives. And that's why I think these high control environments are so destructive for young people that when we take away every decision making, make when we when we make everything in their life about do what I'm you're told, and we will punish you if you don't, then we directly remove their autonomy. And we know that. But the other aspect that I, why I think autonomy is so important, is that our children are learning how to be humans in the world as they go through school. We behave as if what they're doing at school is they've got to learn this curriculum, they've got to you know, remember everything in the curriculum and show that they've done it in the tests and get their test results. But really, what I think childhood is about is learning how to live, learning how to live in the world, learning how to be yourself, learning how to make decisions. And we know from from the neuroscience evidence that particularly in the teenage years, one of, the, one of the systems that's coming in online is the system of self-control, the system of make being able to think about the future, being able to set goals, being able to make decisions for yourself. And that system is experience dependent. And schools often behave as if controlling young people is the same as them being, learning to self-control, them learning to control themselves, but they're actually not. Psychologically, it's very different to be controlled to be told what to do and to think for yourself okay how am I going to behave in these different situations what is important to me here and I think with creating situations schools for our young people which don't put those basic psychological needs at the heart of it. And I think if we were putting psychological theory at the heart of how we educated our children, our first questions would be, how can we create environments for young people where they're able to safely make choices as much as possible? How can we create environments where they can learn to feel good about themselves and their capability? And how can we create environments in which they feel connected with the world around them and with other people? Because those are the three things which we know leads to high quality motivation, high quality learning, and psychological flourishing. So that's where I would like to see our education system
1: start. Go on, Ben. Could I just quickly say something in response to that? That's absolutely right. One thing I I realised I've forgotten is that in the last few years, there's been a much greater emphasis in terms of learning and teaching on the use of research-based approaches. Mm -hmm. A great deal of good has come from that in lots of ways. But what we have yet to engage with properly is the research and evidence around child development and childhood yeah. in general.
0: It's often I, completely absent. I find it amazing.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, yes. I, I, a great deal more we could do with that. Yeah. Yes.
0: Absolutely. Cause I'm a, I'm a child development. I'm a developmental psychologist primarily. That's where I, my basic training was in developmental psychology. And I was amazed when I looked at what was being talked about as research based learning in in educational environments most of it is based on studies done with university undergraduates and i know because i was a university a psychology student i did lots of that i was the participant in many of those studies doesn't look at how children learn and how children develop and that's really what we need to be thinking about in our schools
4: Thank you. Okay, so Ellie, let's let's um, go to you and to hear your thoughts on this on this plan. We're, we're coming up to the hour. If people have any questions, I've, I've made a list of some of the questions that are coming through. Please do use that capital Q. We might run slightly over the hour. It looks like, but this will be recorded. If people if people aren't able to stay beyond two o'clock, you we'll catch up later. Um, but please do get those questions coming in. So over to you, Ellie. What's in your plan? How are we going to fix this?
2: So, yeah, I've been problematizing and formulating and all sorts and listening and talking and thinking and all the rest of it. And, um, and this is um, – so tomorrow – I think it's going to be tomorrow, but it might be Monday. But tomorrow I'm going to publish um, our Square Peg um, response to Gillian Keegan's um, Department for Education's Moments Matter and also um, Bridget Phillipson's announcements this week. But we've got a summary of recommendations which have been sort of gathered and co-created and um, were part of our recommendations to the Education Select Committee attendance inquiry in May. Um, So... Um, uh, I'll just, if I may, just skim through page two, which is our summary, um, and it starts by saying attendance is a lens through which all challenges may be seen, illustrating a nexus of stretch services, fractured policy, inequity and in need. Underserved individual families and under-resourced services collide via attendance barriers and escalating difficulties for children and young people there's 12 recommendations and in fact some of these will pick up with the question uh, some people have asked questions so i'll loop it in with in answer to questions firstly we're recommending that government develop a national well-being and inclusion strategy and that's with children's and children and families and schools and the sort of health of the nation basically because when we prioritize well-being and inclusion in our schools we're we're following and should be um, developing um, a, a strategy in order to meet health determinants which reduces duties on government and they're well-evidenced, and we can import in um, the Marmot principles. There's all sorts that government could and should do, but they need a well-structured, well-informed, integrated, joined-up plan. And at the moment, there is no plan. It's just tinkering around the edges, and it's not achieving anything. So for me, well-being and inclusion need to be at the heart of all conversations, and that means putting children's, developmental um, needs and flourishing at the centre of any and all discussions and government priorities with um, children with uh, special educational needs and disabilities at the centre of those discussions around um, what children and families need. Um, so prioritising wellbeing and inclusion. Um, uh, we're recommending that clinical supervision and support is, is standards for every school. And there's lots of conversations around coaching for educators, and I think that absolutely has a place. But there is something unique and important about clinical supervision, and it is independent, impartial and trained to consultant level that offers a safe space to support the well-being of workforce, reflective practice, active listening, and also to to support the the, the mental health and well-being of, of, of schools who are Uh, frontline key working services and education is the only service that doesn't have this as standard um uh that um uh cams funding is ring fenced at the moment it isn't it goes into a national port for a for a care board um uh and um, and it's sort of tangled up within adult mental health services and it just gets distributed um uh as seen fit it's not a protected budget and it should be um that there is the development of a cams long-term plan much like the mental health care health plan for the nhs but we need a cams one um that we um are uh, supporting the call to fund uh, mental health community hubs. We're supporting the call to um, ensure that every school has a mental health support team and that that has um, supervision bolted into it as a consultant level. Um, we are um, supporting um, the review for unintended consequences. Um, uh, sorry, we'll say uh, we're so this separate. We're recommending review for unintended consequences of attendance targets and monitoring. Um, We are calling for the introduction of a mental health and well-being school registration code. I know that somebody had asked Ben in the chat um, about why schools don't feel that they can authorise mental health um, uh, uh, as as, as a reason. And I think schools are getting very caught up. Um, uh, not of their own making or sometimes it is a cultural decision um, and that they feel they can't authorise a mental health absence um, because they're not medically trained but within the same um, response to the Education Select Committee and um, the um, uh, uh, government have responded the committee has recommended and supported our call for a mental health and wellbeing um, registration code and the government has said schools can't do that because they're not medically trained um, but by the same tokens schools are best placed to decide on whether or not a child When they're there is well enough and fit enough to attend, and they're actually really good at knowing their kids. And it's like we can't have both ways. And actually, the decision as to whether or not a child is fit to attend is parents, and that the veracity of parental opinion is paramount and shouldn't be called into into question unless the child has met the test for at risk of serious harm in the home, and that's quite a high test. So, so for us, we're calling for a mental health and wellbeing registration code to legitimise. Uh, children uh, uh, um, uh, and parent reporting to bring that data out of the shadows and to separate it from physical illness um, and and to act as a pastoral care um, flag um, if mum is saying... got a child who has been declining um in their well-being for a long time and it's at such a state now that they can't attend that should that acts as a flag um uh we would like to see the development of an attendance key worker service we think that the attendance mentors hubs is going in the right direction um but it's we're we're actually recommending um a, a much more robust shared with Health and uh, and Multidisciplinary Working Attendance Key Worker Service. We would like to see the introduction of Attendance Code of Practice. Um, all of this guidance is all very well and good, um, and schools must have regard to it, but it doesn't have parliamentary oversight, um, which means that the DfE can just amend it at will. Um, and it, it hasn't been co-created and isn't robust, much like the Send Code of Practice was and the Admissions Code of Practice. We would like it to see it Um, have parliamentary oversight and be legislated formally. Um, And finally, we are calling for the abolishment of fines and prosecutions and truancy laws. We've got some really big announcements coming up about that. Really exciting. Um, And also parents have said, in the chat what can we do can we do you know let's do a post office type drama all of these things yes 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 with knobs on please um, follow square peg if you're not already sign up to our um, very outdated website we've got a new website coming but we are um, absolutely any parents that want to get involved with action lobbying campaigning around this and also feed into national um, conversations around the improvement of schooling and education broadly please come and sign up square peg is a community space representing children and families who are marginalized and underserved and all professionals who are working with them and we want to change the narrative around how children and families um, and policy is developed uh, developed about us and ensure that it's with us
4: Mm. there we go there you go. Thank you very much. It's amazing. The work that Ellie does and you you are a force of nature and the amount of the impact that you have and the way that you get into people's inboxes and have meetings and into the press and so on is super impressive. Right. Let's go to some questions. Um, there's a few. There, there's one that you, you mentioned physical illness there and how that sort of rolled in with mental health. There's a question here. Um, from Joe Green, who said, we got, does, any, does anybody have any thoughts about the ongoing role of physical illness? Like the, the Tories, the campaign this week was like, oh, your child had a snuffly nose this morning, but well, <laughs> now they're fine. And somebody else just went, your child had symptoms of COVID this morning. I know they're a super <laughs> uh, So Joe has a question. Yeah. Um, any thoughts about the ongoing role of physical illness and the negative effects of encouraging attendance of children and staff when <laughs> ill? Surely spreading coughs, colds, flu, COVID, whatever it is, seems counterintuitive. It's almost a rhetorical question. <laughs> that one, isn't it? But does anybody have anything to say to that?
0: The role of physical illness is an interesting one, I think, because um, GPs are also I've, I've been contacted by a lot of GPs about this issue, partly because they are very much implicated because one of the ways that schools have become well, one of the pressures that's put on is that now there have to be, there has to be much more evidence that a parent's evidence that a child is unwell is not necessarily taken to be enough. So many GPs, I have been contacted with lots of GPs who are quite angry about the fact that they are being basically used as a kind of permission slip for not having to go to school because this not because, because there's no problem the child is ill, the child should be at home, but they're not allowed to be at home unless that's validated by a GP. So there's an awful lot of resources that get eaten up by this pressure of trying to get people into school. But I mean, obviously I think there's a there, there is. There, i think it's interesting that the physical health thing is completely not talked about as they, as they say with this attendance crisis and yet 73 percent is coded as medical absence like so what are we going to do and make children less ill um how does how how does one solve that because i think it, it's an easier narrative to say it's because the parents aren't pushing them hard enough it's because children aren't resilient that's an easy narrative for politicians yeah
2: I think. Can I just talk about why GPs are being pinched Mm. now? Yeah, that comes that comes about from um, the Attendance Alliance, which is a politically driven. Alliance um, mm-hmm. via the Secretary of State, and she's got on there um, uh, uh, a chosen, select panel including the Chief GP, who's been got at now to now recommend and to co-ops Chris Whitty um, to write a letter to schools about and to parents about when to si- sign your child, send your children to school. So again, just like the narrative, the the, the sort of complete hyperbole and hubris that parents are working from home and therefore they're keeping their children off. Anyone throughout the pandemic who was trying to work whilst having children at home will know it doesn't add up. Um, so this sort of idea, and that narrative, that idea that parents are working from home and therefore they are um, keeping their children came from a, 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 an opinion by an organisation from School Dash who were sort of analysing data and thinking about what's going on and they suggested it and it's become a truth. So so, so so, do be alert to those kind of truths mm-hmm. and push back to them. But definitely the um, chief DP has been nobbled. And so that is now um, washing down into primary practice. Um, the DFE are asking parents if they are, if they are um, being refused absence, um, authorised absence due to medical needs, please fill in the contact us form. Um, uh, on the DFE website and we've had responses from parents who have done so, who have seen an improvement. So that's a recommendation for parents um, to do. I would also say that let's not mince about. Chronic stress in childhood, toxic stress, we know from the data and studies like the ACEs da- um, um, studies, et cetera, shows that chronic um, um, illness, uh, chronic stress, toxic stress in childhood, reduces health outcomes. Mm-hmm. So we know that when a child is going through the most terrible time, it, it, it directly links to greater prevalence of heart disease, diabetes, obesity, um, uh, early mortality. It's serious stuff. So chronic stress causes inflammation in the body, which means that you are less able, less healthy, less fit to respond to ordinary coughs and colds and more likely to go on to develop autoimmune disease and all the rest of it. So I think the health determinants are really, really really important. And if we are not allowing, if we have a... A culture of presenteeism, which the workplace had in the 90s, and, and employers have done a massive amount to allow duvet days, to allow sick days, to allow mental health support um, for their employees. And again, school hasn't got the memo. Educate Politicians haven't got the memo. So I think we need to change, actually, um, our attitudes to actually it's much healthier to be socially responsible. And if you're feeling too unwell, take a day in bed and rest. And you're less <laughs> likely to spread it, but also you're more likely to recover more quickly. Mm. So that's what I would say about that.
4: Yeah, there's lots of shaming, isn't there? Like attendance rewards. I was at a school where they had we had attendance rewards for the ki- for the for the teachers. There was there was like this sort of round of <laughs> rounds of applause and people getting given bottles of carver because they didn't have to take a day off for a sick child. It's just it's amazing that these ideas. Take root sometimes, right, let's go to some more questions. There was one earlier on um from h Alonso, and I wonder whether there's a few people on on this uh call with this question which is about how how should you support your child if you find that your child, as in Eliza frickers recently but can't not won't go to school, if you find that your child is is unable um to go to school or unwilling really difficult situation to deal with. I know a little bit through experience. What, what advice would you give to a parent in that situation? don't know who wants to pick that one up.
2: I can speak from personal experience or I can recommend our book, <laughs> which is to help schools to, to come alongside Naomi's a contributor. Um, Eliza illustrated so that there, there's a plethora of tools in there, but I think, um, uh, I'm sure Naomi would agree it's about coming alongside and validating that child's experience don't try to dismiss or deny what they're going through don't try to I think it's what we're seeing is a capacity deficit in adults that they feel so uncertain around a child in distress and they lack the tools to know how to contain and soothe that distress. And actually what is needed is time. And it could be just a few minutes of empathy and listening and not rushing in to fix or to say that it's really not that bad and don't be silly, Um, but to actually put in place the time and space to treat treat a child's distress honestly, authentically and and with real um, um, uh, integrity. Um, so firstly, I think I think that, and, and that's where the narrative around parenting courses was perhaps introduced with the right intentions, because it did come out of sort of health visiting and that sort of thing about getting to know your child. It's just that some of those parenting courses are behaviourist and are out of the sort of super nanny camp, Triple P springs to mind, which is all about making life easier for the parent, for the parent to get on with going to work, rather than... Developing the tools with your child and having the relational tools to support them. So, firstly, you need a safe listening adult. If that's not possible at home for whatever reason, then schools are the next line to do that. Um, mm. But also, um, uh, the, the, the simplest way I can recommend it is by creating a water off a duck's attitude. So, and one of the most alarming things that we came up against was that schools, were, school was rabbit in headlights. Teachers were rabbit in headlights. They just didn't know what to do. And and it was just kind of like, and, and you get this implicit sort of response that you're coming to the end of a half term or a transition point or an exam or whatever. And nothing's changed. What are we going to do? Assess, plan, do, review. Oh, you know, and it's kind of like, OK, everyone stop. Actually, if you, to remain in flow, because when we're stressed, we think in a rigid way. We go, to, we go to sort of rules, regulations, order. But actually, to remain in flow, water for ducks back. We've seen this. We understand this. Don't worry, it's normal. Tomorrow is a new day. This afternoon is a new chance. Honestly, if you need to go home, don't worry about it. That's fine. We'll be here tomorrow for you. And so that sort of water off a duck's back attitude is so important. And if school isn't the right place for you, okay, let's talk about that. Let's talk about why that is and what we can do. And and, and if you need something else, let's talk about that. So water off a duck's back, honestly, as a parent, we can get really anxious ourselves. Oh, my God, they're missing learning. They're going to miss their exams. Life is over. Naomi talks about this all the time, brilliantly. You know, so many, I was I was deemed an academic failure at eleven. Um, and 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 you know we we all grow up so and I think somebody put in the chat as well, learning is lifelong, and it doesn't need to take place in a bricks and mortar setting. Although that is the traditional offer, but it's also in, online and it's variable. And just because you don't pass your exams at sixteen, it's not the end of the world. However. My children really, really want to stay on track with their peers and the shame they feel that they can't pass their exams at 16 or might not is really important. So, again, when results come out, Jeremy Clarkson saying, I'm all right, Jack. You know, actually, for children, the experience that they're not keeping up, that they're not fitting, again, needs to be held and listened to and taken taken seriously. Mm. I hope that helps.
4: Thank you. Very, very sensible, sound, wise advice there. Um, ben or Naomi, do you have anything to add to that? Because this is such an important question.
1: I, I, I don't have a great deal to add to it. I, th- I think what, uh, what Elia said is, is very effective and sensible. I, I, I think as, from a school point of view, having an appreciative attitude, being professionally curious, listening... listening without judgment is probably the first step i'm saying that sitting here on a saturday afternoon Mm -hmm. that isn't always as simple as it sounds in the pressurized environment of a school where there's bells every 50 minutes and school life doesn't work like that 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 is one of the problems i think so having an appreciative attitude focusing on a solution focusing on what that child can do and celebrating it and not, th- I think, not thinking, to- Ellie kind of said, there's not thinking too far ahead either. It's it's really easy for a parent to spiral with this and to say, "Well, oh, my God, at the age of eight, they're not going to school, so this means by the time they're 16, it's all going to be a disaster. It isn't. You don't know how long this is going to take, It's and it's going to take as long as it will take as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's a really good point,
0: Ben. I, I mean, I think the most important thing is to be hopeful, to retain hope for the child and for the family. Because I think often when a child's struggling with school, the way that that's dealt with is that dire predictions are made about how awful, and and people do that with the hope that this will motivate the child to go to school. So I meet lots of parents who say their children have been told things like, if you don't come to school, your parents will go to prison. Um, if you don't go to school now, you will never get an interesting job. You will be working in a fast food restaurant for the rest of your life. I've had a child told that they will end up under a bridge if they don't come to school. Children are very impressionable, very suggestible, and they do believe these things. So I see a child in my therapy room who is not attending school because it may- makes them they feel terrible at school they can't attend school and they really believe that that means the rest of their life is going to be awful because mm-hmm. they've been told that and that is a despairing child that you've got in front of you then you've got a child who really thinks that not only is life awful now life is always going to be awful for me because of this and i think one of the things that maybe i bring to the room is i say yes i know because school was awful for me too and then it got and then things got better And I managed to do things that I managed to learn. And you don't always have to learn in the same way as school tells you you have to learn. And what really interests you and what really makes you come to life? And that's what I say to parents as well. What really helps this child come to life? Do more of that. Do that with them. Because even if it's playing video games, do it with them. If it's beauty or fashion or horses, get in there because that's the place where this child is going to feel good about themselves. And it's that what, that's what you want. You want that sense that I'm capable, I can do things because that is what they need to take them through to the future. And that is, whether that route is going to be through school or whether it's not, that's okay. Cause really it's about what is going to help you thrive and learn as you grow up.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much um linked to this there's a question about flexi schooling from cls who was saying what about the kids who want on some level to be at school who want to learn they want the friendships but they can't handle it's just a bit overwhelming why isn't flexi schooling more available if it's a legal possibility do either of you have much experience or any of you rather have much experience with flexi schooling
0: I think it's become diff- more difficult. I know that when I first started home educating, more families did it. But I think there was a change. Ellie or Ben probably know more about this. There was a change in how school had to record the absence, which meant that schools were suddenly much more reluctant to do it. Because I do think for some for some kids it can be a really good solution, and it can mean that they do something in a different place, in a different environment for that day, an extra day or two, and that can make that can make all the difference. Um, but I do think there was a change. I don't know. I don't know exactly what it was.
2: I think um, so. When I met with the DFE last year, um, and I was talking about because there was a big piece of um, press that happened over coding for use of alternative provision and the fact that um, Amanda Spielman has... HMCI for Ofsted had said um, that um, you know, schools were using B coding irresponsibly yeah. um, and so um, and, and and the whole EO test um, element, um, education otherwise than other than our school was, um, was, was flagged as well and there are without a doubt some schools that were coding children as learning off-site and they were off-site with no provision um, and school was telling the family that they weren't going to deliver any provision so it was the uh, uh, an issue that needed to be raised flexi but when i raised it with um with the dfe they were like absolutely this does need tackling but of course schools do have in their armory flexi schooling um and that actually is an agreement that can be made by the head teacher and that my i was um uh, recommended to set to, to to remind head teachers about this um but also that um uh within the um Uh, And in fact, Ben can probably talk about um, some work that he's been doing on it as well. But I think that it is um, uh, absolutely part of the landscape that should be and can be considered. However, accountability, top-down pressure, um, performance targets and everything else makes it very, very difficult. But for our children, often a flexi-schooling arrangement developed with families is absolutely the lifeline that they need in order to remain on role and accessing that and with um schools hemorrhaging places of course what means that means is they've got a large funding and they've lost the funding for that child's place in the next year's budget so so i think it's complicated but ben do you want do you want to talk about that a bit more
1: flexi schooling is something that we you introduced me to actually ellie via sarah who's on this chat somewhere i've seen her and we're at the very early stages of of looking at it. We haven't actually had, I haven't actually enacted it yet. It does have an impact Or I think I run in saying, I was actually looking as you were talking for the, the advice and I can't find it just now to post it in the chat. It does have an impact on your attendance stats, although actually you'd be doing it in a, in a school like ours with so few children, it's unlikely to have much of a headline impact. Um, but uh, it does have a great deal of potential, I think. And I would add to that as well that, The pressure that was put on schools recently in the last year, and again, it came from HMCI, around part-time timetables or reduced schooling or whatever you want to call it. it, That struck me at the time and still does is deeply unfair because for some young people, saying you have to do a full day in school is, is the barrier. Saying you can do half a day in school can make them feel like they've succeeded. And I just don't know why you would take that away from some children. But the rules around that have been tightened up a great deal, because again, what we're often looking at is a very performative approach. So how how does this look to the outside world? How can this be linked to accountability rather than necessarily what is best for the child? But both flexi-schooling and reduced timetabling ha- have great advantages for some children. I think
2: also that that was partly because we've got children at risk of exclusion who were yeah. being placed on a part-time timetable against mm-hmm. families' wishes and against that child's wishes. So it was right to flag it, but I think yeah. um, which but um, but flexi schooling is an option. It just takes a lot of time to develop. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So we've got loads more questions and it's 20 past two. Should we go till half past? Are people okay with that? And there's still 200 people on the call. So obviously people are uh, still, uh, there's one comment just to, just to set up the next one. This isn't a question, but it's a question, a comment from Jen, who just said, uh, can't thank you enough for your incredible work sitting here in tears that there are so many here saying the same thing that I've been through the past year and a half been through hell with school and social services i assume that's what ss is and the local authority full of parent blaming when school has traumatized my child and it's worth just checking in with that because the it's there is so behind all of the stats and the trends and the stuff that we've been talking about there's all these individual stories that are often really really difficult stressful painful there's lots of sort of conflict in the home Trying to get your kid out of the door in the morning, they're putting the brakes on. Like, there's just the stress, the sort of the shame, the inadequacy, feelings of guilt. Like, it's very, very difficult stuff to go through. Um, And and there's been a group of questions that have been around sort of what can we do about this? So, there's one from Linda What can we do as parents for this and the next generation? It's too late for my family, but would love to support a change. Andy asked the same thing What actions can people take? Blur asks, how can we get heard? Is this going to get worse? I mean the trends are going in one direction, aren't they? So what what can people do, like not just in terms of as a parent of a child, but just like generally, what can people do to to get involved in, in, in being part of a solution? Oops. Are you on- <laughs> mute, Ellie? She's muted. Oh uh,
2: sorry. Please sign up to SquarePeg. I've got a new website, a new a new community offer please 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 there's so much that's going to be happening and I'm so excited by people that are finding us and that are want to get engaged in, and involved um James we need a meeting Naomi we need a meeting <laughs> I just don't have enough time but there's so much to do and um and 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 yeah there's loads of activity um uh, in terms of what's what's out there and how I think collectively because this isn't parents can't do it on their own schools can't do it on their own government can't do it on their own this is a this is a collective endeavor and we all need to um coalesce co become cohesive something um collide um in order in order to fix this but um yeah square peg has really 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 would like to um uh uh escalate and elevate um, uh, family voice and professionals who are working in this space.
4: Thank you. Naomi or Ben? Oh,
2: and I sh- sorry, I should have said, write to your MP. So again, Three Asks campaign, I'll put the link, and you can write to your MP and support our campaign. Um, and also um, if you're on socials um, and um, would like to share any of the information in terms of what we're calling for, what are uh, the voices of families um, and any of the work that's going on, get involved with Rethinking Education, please, 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 um, uh, and um, if you want some hope um, that's the space to access that. Also, we are part of the Education Policy Alliance and we are um, uh, publishing our work, founded by James, and doing really good work, sorry if you can hear the banging, um, around um, influencing policy, um, education policy and sign up to that as well if you're interested in that. There's loads to do. Come and join.
4: Yeah, thank you. I've just put some links in the chat there. There's one to Ellie's site, Team SquarePeg. There's one to the Education Policy Alliance that Education PA one. That's a group that Ellie and Ben are both involved in. We're about to launch our first report into Ofsted this week. So much of this joins up. Teacher recruitment and retention, Ofsted, mental health. It's all attendance and behavior relationships, curriculum. There's, there's no there's no single fix. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a lot of stuff to do. Yeah. Um, and there's also a link to my um, newsletter thing there, the, the Rethinking Ed Beehive thing. If you want to keep in touch, please do that. Naomi um, has a mailing list as well and a brilliant sub stack that you want to keep up with. Uh, Naomi, do you have anything to add to this question of what can people do?
0: No, I think just keep agitating. That's been my policy. Just keep holding up those flags saying it's still mm. there. And, it, and it's hard to do it because you'll often be told I'm always being told that I'm just making trouble and disruptive i always think of it a bit analogous to behavior at school yeah. you know i'm the troublemaker in the corner but i think it's worth it's worth keeping to speak up about your experiences
4: i mean there's, there's something happening here like we were saying with there's something about this issue around attendance and mental health that is that we've hit this this sort of moment of 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 awakening, and not not too dissimilar to the to the post office thing. I don't think that it would take much to tip this over to it to be <laughs> coming right at the top of it, and it's already. You, we need someone to make
0: a drama. Is that what you're saying, <laughs> James? We need it. <laughs> we need a drama. No,
4: we do but um, there's power in numbers, right? Like there's political yeah. clout. like like teachers. There's only you know there's, there's not that many teachers, and they're. they're they, they, I think they tend to be written off as like left-leaning anyway. And so they, like, politically, the teachers don't really have a, a political constituency. Kids obviously can't vote. But parents can and do. And if there's 2 million persistent absentees, that's between, what, somewhere, I guess, around 3 million on average parents and carers who have this very live issue happening day after day after day in their homes if a polit- if a politician could see the the open goal here which is that if they can figure out a set of policies that will speak to those families and say we will help to alleviate this stress from your home life that seems to me to be something that people would would tick a box in the ballot booth against the problem that they that they you know is right in the heart of their family and, and and there's power in numbers, and so I think that the extent to which more people can join those those um, newsletters and and lists and what have you, and email lists, Facebook groups, not finding school um, more than a score, all of that stuff, there's there's um, there's a there's a potential here for if, if we can mobilize all of those people to say actually something needs to happen here, and we can create a a very clear plan for but what politicians can do more of and less of to, to fix... No, I
2: think- I think just to pick up on that, we are in a unique window with a protracted space before a general election. Twenty twenty three, we had more press and more political conversations as a tiny organisation than ever before. Prior to that, nobody wanted to um, talk to us, and um, and we've we've just you know we've we've had scandal after scandal at a national level um, post COVID and in an inquiry that is literally exposed you know laying bones um, out for us all that we knew were there so but but i don't think we can be complacent because as soon as the next government are in policy will be set and direction of travel will be in place for the next five years so james is absolutely right as voters absolutely now is the time to really act please do get involved politically in any shape or form that you can. I was never a political animal, but honestly, having spoken to laws and MPs, we are the ones in the pound seats in the run-up to an election. So write to your MP, take our 12 recommendations and the report, support the 12 other uh, three asks, um, ask for a more democratic and progressive education system, say that it's time it's changed, it's overdue, dah, dah, dah. whatever it is, keep doing it, because um MPs p- parliamentarians only listen in this window and unlike the previous when was it 2017 2019 we, we haven't got snap elections when we go into perda which means that lobbying stops campaigning cannot be listened to because perda is a unique protective space so so, in, uh, so, your opportunity to influence politics and to get your MP to say, yes, I'll support you and yes, I'll recommend it on your behalf. And I'll pledge to support this group in my community is now because once we're in Perda, they can't do that so Mm. so um is that sort of safe space before an election so absolutely this year word is that um it's going to be a a winter or even new year election um let's hope that it's not a snap election because that does actually then shut down any time that we have to influence parliamentarians
4: yes Yes. And uh, and as a final thing, I've just recently read that book. Alistair Campbell wrote a book, But What Can I Do? So just mm-hmm. on the back of what Ellie just said about um, about becoming politically active, uh, there are lots of ways in which you can do that. And it's that's quite a readable book. So yeah. I would recommend that.
1: Can I just throw something in, James? Just oh. So in relation to that, I think we need to be mindful. That, th- that there are multiple ways as, as the, the others have described of using your voice, but please, when you're doing it, remember that you are part of your school. The school is very much rooted in its community. So at a micro level, what you say to other parents and carers about this issue helps and it helps the school. And please appreciate the people who you feel are doing the right things in those schools as well and, and speak up as you are for, for young people. But I suppose if I had to boil it down to one thing, remember that it also needs to be beyond the remit of any one political party. Mm -hmm. If there's gonna be a long-term change, it can't just be that people are hoping Labour will do this. It's got to be for the long-term and it has to also include the basics of things like funding, how education staff are trained, how the curriculum is developed. And actually a big thing is the lever of accountability, how how schools are held to account. It is a huge issue in this. None of those things is particularly sexy. (laughs)
4: but they're important. Okay. There you go. Another another yeah. not very sexy bombshell. We are we, going to we're going we're gonna to <laughs> wrap this up. Thank you very much to uh to Naomi, to Ben and Ellie uh for giving up your time on this Saturday. Thank you to everybody um who's still who's still with us um for for sharing your comments and questions in the chat. I'm sorry that we ran out we couldn't get to all of your questions. Um, but I think that you'll agree that we've now fixed the attendance situation, and we can all go home. There's obviously a lot to do. It's going to keep us off the streets for some time to come, but it's really interesting, important work. And so, so please do keep in touch, get involved. Thank you for joining us, and uh, maybe we should do more of these these Saturday Live sessions. It seems like people people uh, have got have got some time to spare. <laughs> So, uh, Saturday uh, l- lunch
0: lunchtime, it's Sunday yeah, lunchtime.
4: Right. <laughs> yeah. Thank you all very much. Uh we'll see you again, hopefully.
2: Thank
3: you. Thank, Thank
1: you. you. Great to see you all. We have a narrow
3: curriculum which pleases at the us. So let me overfake education. There is a lack of imagination. Children should be self-directed, showing us their way. Let them lead. Transferable skills should be the core of what we teach. Let. Children, as often wrecks the schools. So let's rethink education. We have a lack of agency. We're trapped inside the system. So let's rethink education. A place of transformation that embraces community. Who is the heart? A place to dream, a place to play, a place to think and love.